What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Today's episode is going to be brought to you by Mystery Ranch, built for the mission. And if you haven't been rocking a Mystery Ranch wildland firefighting pack, well, you're doing it wrong in your back, probably hurts your knees hurt and all that other stuff. But Mystery Ranch is built for the mission. And what do I mean by that? Well, we're going to take a little history lesson. Why was Mystery Ranch actually creative? Well, because they're in the business to make lives better on the, on the ground. That's basically it. And because they actually give a shit about you guys. Yeah. Uh, old Lucas Mayfield over there is uh, the fire director, the fire uh, chief, if you will, the person who is putting in design elements from feedback from you firefighters on the ground to make the packs bigger, better, stronger, and more comfortable, and you name it, they're in it. Back in the day, you know, Dana Gleason, I did an episode with him. He's pretty rad. So how was uh, Mystery Ranch created? Uh, Dana and a South Ops shot crew who shall not be named, decided to uh, go to work and change how wildland firefighters work by designing the best damn packs in the game. So if you want to find out more, go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check it out. And while you're at it, they can't build better packs unless you give them feedback. So fill out a little request if you got some uh, good suggestions or some improvements to uh, an already bitching pack. Well, they want to hear it. Why? Because they give a shit and they recognize that the wildland firefighter community needs the best damn packs in the game to do their job the best way possible. So if you want to find out more, go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check out the Shift SC. It's a new pack. It's designed for USAR and SAR and REMS teams for a uh, 72 hour solution. And those folks that don't have to uh, carry a fire shelter is pretty cool. And while you're at it, check out the big Ernie. Yeah. Well, if you need a uh, big old pack to throw your stuff in, say you're going over, uh, I don't know, a long period of time. Well, check out that big Ernie pack and also check out the Backbone series. Yeah, it's all located over there at www.mysteryranch.com. Go check it out. The Anchor Point Podcast is also going to be brought to you by our premier coffee sponsor, and that's going to be none other than Hot Shot Brewery. It's kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause, and a portion of the proceeds will always go back to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. But if you uh, don't happen to be in the mood for some kick-ass coffee well they got a ton of other stuff too what you might ask well they have all of the tools of the trade to get your morning started off right and they have a metric shit pile of wildland firefighter themed apparel so if you're in the uh in the market for some uh, these tools of the trade like an aeropress or a pour over system or some sweet merch well go over to www.hotshotbrewing.com and check it out and while you're at it Go over there and check out the uh, Anger Point podcast section. Yeah, we got some exclusive merch over there. They're hooking us up by uh, supporting our uh, merchandise. So if you want to get a hold of one of those Fire Fiend tees or one of those Band of Brothers tees, well, look no further than www.hotshotbrewing.com. Go over there and check it out. The Anchor Point Podcast would also like to give a quick little shout out to our buddy Booze over at the Ass Movement. And what does that stand for, you might ask? Well, it stands for the Anti-Surface Shitting Movement. It's a cause that I can definitely get behind, but there's your dad joke of the day. And they are serious about stewardship to the land. I don't know about you guys, but I absolutely hate when people go onto our public lands like like a trailhead or my favorite fly fishing spot or my favorite chucker hunting place. And just take a big big old dump on the side of the trail and just gift wrap it in toilet paper for you or your dog or whoever to find. That shit is disgusting and it needs to stop. So lucky for you, you could spread the good word about burying your turds over at www.thefirewild.com where you can check out the ass movement and get some stickers, some posters, some shirts. They've got it all and it's for a good cause. So Anchor, Anchor Point and 
booze over here. We've kind of teamed up. We've got an exclusive discount code for you. And uh, you can save 10% off your entire purchase site-wide by using the code AnchorPointAss10 at checkout. So if you want the finest in poo-bearing propaganda, go over to www.thefirewild.com and check out the ass movement. And last but not least, the Anchor Point Podcast would like to give a quick little shout out to our friends over at the American Wildfire Experience. Now, they are not a sponsor of ours, but I do deeply, deeply believe in the cause that Bethany has going on over there. Basically, what it is, is a catalog, a digital archive of wildland firefighting stories from across the globe. Yeah, even though the name says American Wildfire Experience, it is a very much, very much a global affair. And yeah, all these uh, wildland firefighting stories date all the way back to the 1940s, which is pretty cool. It's pretty epic. So if you want to uh, want to uh, get some perspective from your peers in the field and uh, take a trip down memory lane or just see other people's experiences, well, go over to www.wildfireexperience.org. And while you're at it, check out the Smoky Generation. Yes, the AWE is the ones who house the Smoky Generation and that grant program. And it's an other star, it's an other storytelling platform for wildland fire. And it is a global affair as well. Just want to give a, a special shout out to all the 2022 Smoky Generation grant recipients this year. Uh, yeah, you guys are doing some awesome work and I look forward to seeing what's coming out next. Bethany, you have a kick-ass organization over there. Keep it up. The views and opinions of this podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization, any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. I hope everybody is doing well, and I hope everybody is kind of buckling up for that uh, downward glide path to the end of the season. It looks like we got the mosquito fire going in my neck of the woods, and we got a couple of fires up in Region 1 and up in the Pacific Northwest in Region 6. But that season, the seasons are changing, and with that comes your elevated precipitation and your cooler temperatures, and it's that glide path towards the end of the season. It's not quite over yet, so don't get complacent, don't get a case of the fuckets, and keep your head on a swivel, because it is not over yet. But, seems like we're on the glide path downward. But other than that, today on the show, we're going to bring it back to Anchor Point's roots and have our second guest ever on the show, back on the show, to uh, talk about her life and her podcast and what she's been doing in the past three years and what inspired her to create her own flavor of podcasts regarding fire. And it's primarily in the educational and more scientific kind of component to wildfire and prescribed fire. It's a podcast all about our relationship with fire and how to prepare for a future with wildfires. Yeah, because we're stuck with this. Not necessarily a problem, but it's something that we need to live with. Can be a problem if it's directly affecting you, but yeah. Anyways, it's dynamic. You get my drift. So with that being said, I would like to introduce my very good friend, Amanda Monti, back on the show for her second time. Welcome to The Anchor Point. 
You ready? I'm ready. Are you sure? Yeah. Are you positive? I'm going to take a sip of my mule here that you made mm, me. Tequila mule. Mm-hmm. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Today on the show, we've got a very special guest. She was my second guest ever on the podcast, and she is live and in person in here in Reno, Nevada, and we're going to talk about whatever. We're going to talk about the future fire. We're going to talk about prescribed fire. We're going to talk about her podcast, Life with Fire podcast. If you haven't heard about it, you should definitely listen to it because it's fucking awesome. Yeah. So, Amanda, Monty, tell us about yourself. Hi. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you for letting me sleep in your spare bedroom while I am nomadically running through Reno. Um, I am a freelance writer and I produce this podcast, uh, Life with Fire, and I... I'm a former hotshot slash wildland firefighter. I was in fire for four seasons and I talked to Brandon my first summer in fire or my first summer on a hotshot. Was it your first, first year? I was like, I think I was a rookie. 2019? Oh, I was two years in. Ah, I was going to say, I was going Close enough. I was going to like get mad at myself <laughs> for having been on a podcast as a rookie on a hotshot crew. I would have been like, that's something that I should have been hazed for. I feel like, <laughs> yeah. but as a snooky, it's like mildly less. You get a pass. Regrettable. <laughs> a, a little bit of a pass. You're still going to get some shit for it, but I should have gotten more shit for that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was cool. We had you on for, uh, some, I guess, new perspectives, some fresh perspectives about women in fire and what it's like to be a hot, a woman on a hotshot crew Mm -hmm. and get kind of a, a a real in-depth and kind of unadulterated version, not the like spruced up version, like a very real version of what it's like, especially your second year on a hotshot crew. It's pretty uh, unique. And yeah, here we are coming full circle circa three years later, when you have your own podcast, you have left fire. And yeah, you're out on your own, you're freelance writing and you're just crushing it, man. Well, thank you. You are too. Just sitting in this insane office where I'm like taking all these mental notes of all the equipment you have and it's literally a spare bedroom. (laughs) Well, (laughs) (laughs) shitty furniture and a computer that's probably way too overpriced. Thanks, Apple. But yeah, I'm learning. I'm learning a lot right now uh, about how um, inadequate my podcast. I don't think it's inadequate <laughs> by any means. And I think, uh, you know, I think you're selling yourself short there because I think like the, uh, content of your podcast, it actually one it's needed and two it's educational, right? I'm like the person who's talking about culture and that's kind of like what I've predicated my podcast topics off of is like the culture of wildland fire and like helping yourself and, you know, little tips and tricks that no one really ever tells you. It's like raising a kid, right? Mm-hmm. Like no one tells you how to raise kids. Totally. No one, <laughs> nobody, no one, no matter what people say, you are not prepared for it. Yeah. But noted. <laughs> anyways, moral of the story is you, you have a different avenue. And I think that the message that you're sending with your podcast is very crucial because it helps people understand the reasoning why mm-hmm. we have to live with fire. Right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. That's been, that's been the whole focus is, is well driving the podcast with content versus top quality audio production is very, this is of, not top quality. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I'm just letting the content do the work here because I don't know, Jack diddly squat about doing anything technical. Um, but it's been really fun and it's been well received and people like I, it's an independent podcast, so I can do whatever I want with it, which is kind of both a 
maybe a pro anacon. <laughs> I, get, I get folks in my email that are like, what are you doing covering this topic? And I'm like, I'm doing whatever I want. And like, let me, let me live my life. But <laughs> don't just, tread on me, bro. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't know. I come up with an idea and I'm like, yeah, that probably hasn't been discussed enough. And kind of, you know, most of what I'm trying to do is, you know, educate the public on some of these more on these complex nuances that exist in the fire space. Um, everybody, you know, we all kind of know those things. Like it's a very convoluted web of things of factors that contribute to the conditions that we're in right now and what we're, what we're dealing with. So just trying to break that down a little bit for folks and educate folks and kind of a sort of ulterior motive I have is to help educate journalists, especially, I think like, I think just seeing how the media covers, how some media covers fire versus other, uh, other media sources, like, I'm just sensing that there's a bit of a gap there in the understanding and like the, the sort of on the ground perspective. And I think that, uh, yeah, it's been really, it's been really cool to see it kind of take hold. And I've talked to some journalist friends that listen to it to just get a better understanding about things before they work on a story, which is really, really cool. And that's kind of been a, um, kind of, like I said, an ulterior motive through all of this, but, but really just trying to engage as broad of a community as possible in the idea of learning more about fire. So a lot of my audience uh, are people that already work in natural resources and fire. And that's really cool. But I've also had a lot of folks who are just recreationists or just hunters or public lands users. And, and they seem to glean some of it, uh, something interesting from it as well, which is great. And I, I hope to kind of provide that balance in, you know, having some of these really complex episodes where I bring on a scientist and they talk a lot of like sort of lingo-y stuff. Uh, and then I try to balance that out with stuff that's more interesting to kind of the broader public. And yeah, it's been awesome. <laughs> nice. Well, I think it's important, the message that you're saying, and you mentioned something very, like very important, I think, uh, in that description of what you do and why you do it. And I think it's, uh, the description of what we actually do as federal wildland firefighters or just wildland firefighters in general, because there's a huge disconnect between what the public perception of a firefighter and a wildland firefighter is right. Mm -hmm. Like you ask Joe public at Albertsons or Winco or Walmart or wherever you may be in the coffee shop, right? Hey, uh, someone asked you, Hey, what do you do for a living? I see your green pants and your crew shirt, blah, 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 blah. blah. What do you do for a living? Well, I'm a wildland firefighter. Oh, so you're a smoke jumper. Or you work for Cal Fire? I mean, literally every time. Every time. It's unbelievable. Every time. <laughs> it's like people don't know. And I think that's the the true gold nugget, the value of what you provide, but you provide a educational and scientific basis behind it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like very, very, very much needed. Yeah. I, I just like kind of saw that there was a gap there in, especially in the podcasting space, but also just really in the creative space for building this greater understanding of fire in a really accessible way and not, you know, not in like the webinars that you have to like register for or like the research papers or kind of like these really heavy newsletters that you can sign up for. Like, I love that shit and I will eat that up, but to sort of digest that stuff and make it more accessible to the public who maybe aren't as interested in reading like really heavy <laughs> uh, research papers or the like, um, that's kind of what most of my work has turned into is just trying to make stuff more digestible to a broader audience. And, um, and it's been really fun. It's been, 
It's been a pretty good learning curve and I cannot stop coming up with new topics to cover. Like my list of things that I want to talk about on the podcast is going to keep me busy for the next like six years. Like I've had people ask me if I'm I'm sick of doing this podcast yet. And I'm like, genuinely no, because I have so many topics that I'm passionate about that I could talk to people about for hours and be totally and completely happy doing that. And I just, I feel like it would be a disservice to not cover all these topics that I've built up and all these, these potential guests that people have sent me. And I'm just like, okay, I love this guest. I love this idea, but I'm putting them on like the list and the list is like eight, 80 people long right now. It's like unbelievable. 80 is maybe dramatic. I would say maybe like actually 35. <laughs> That's still pretty damn good though. It's so many people. <laughs> See, I don't know about you, I, but I, I come to like, as I have a day job, I go to work just like every other, you know, blue collar American out there. You know, I go to work every day. And uh, I, th- I think that the uh, biggest problem that I have with interviewing guests is the time constraints because this isn't my full-time job. This is like, mm-hmm a freaking really rad hobby. And I don't know what it's like for you, but is this like more of a hobby for you or is it something that you want to progress into as like a full-time platform? Like, mm-hmm. do you want to do this professionally or what's, what's your whole glide path there? Well, I mean, currently it's like a means for me to procrastinate on all the writing projects I should be doing and or pitching. Um, and I'd like to see it progress into more of a full-time gig because I can see the potential there for it. I think yeah. like I'm seeing folks that do want to sponsor it. And it's amazing to me because you like read all these blog posts when you start a podcast and it's, they're all telling you that you need like 50,000 listens or downloads. That's bullshit. Every month in order you to make start money from off zero. of it. You have to start from zero. Yeah. But like to make money, it's like everything on the internet tells you that you have to be getting insane numbers every week. And this is such a niche podcast, but I feel like the folks that listen, like listen consistently and yeah. they like reach out and there's a lot of engagement and I get a lot of DMS. And like a couple of weeks ago, I did this experiment where I was like in my outro for one of my episodes, I was like, does anybody actually listen to the outro on podcasts? Like if you guys are listening to this, let me know. And I got like, <laughs> like eight DMS from people that are like, I listen to the end of your podcasts. And so it's like funny. It's a funny, like really niche audience. Um, but I think there's a lot of value in that. And I think it can be easily overlooked by people who are just looking for numbers in terms of sponsorship. And maybe you have the same experience where, yeah, I mean, it is a really niche audience. You have like a very specific group that you're speaking to, but there's a lot of value in the amount of engagement that you can get from those audiences. I think it's like, uh, I, 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 I wouldn't necessarily say it. it's like the, the quality versus quantity kind of component, but it's, there's something to be said, I guess, about the niche audience. Mm-hmm. Like, especially a super engaged niche audience. And, uh, I've had pretty loyal listenership for the three years that I've been doing ever since I've interviewed you. Then you started, you started yours in 2019 too, right? Uh, 2020, 2020. My first season out of fire. I was bored out of my mind in May of 2020 and like spending a lot of time at home because that was like the midst of, in the midst of COVID. And, um, I was unsure what my plan was for the summer. I was like looking at potentially getting like an arborist job. I was like, should I just go back to fire? Should I like go back with my tail between my legs? <laughs> Cause I had already decided that I didn't want to do it. And then I was like, this, I'm done. And I like legitimately started applying for like Washington DNR jobs in like April and May. I was like, oh no, like I, I think that I need to go back to fire because I don't know what else to do with myself. And I had gotten out of fire in order to pursue creative work. And I just hadn't had the opportunity to build that into a full-time thing at that point. And, 
Um, and so, yeah, I got some PIO training though that summer. And so I was working, That's rad. I was working as a PIO that summer and that was what kind of paid the bills. Um, but in the meantime, yeah, I started the podcast when I was kind of like just bored out of my mind in May and doing some writing projects. And I was like, I was actually coming up with all these ideas for a series or like a column for someone. I was like pitching this column idea to like the Seattle times and then like the Oregonian and then, uh, outside magazine. And, uh, was just not really, I was just like throwing all these ideas at the wall and none of them were really sticking. And I realized that I had all these ideas for a series uh, or for a column. And I was like, well, why don't I just like interview those folks anyway, and then turn it into just a quick and easy podcast where I just upload these interviews with like a little bit of editing. Um, and a friend of mine, my, my friend, Tim actually brought that idea up to me because I was lamenting that I wanted to do this column, but nobody was really like into it. And he was like, it sounds like you have podcast material. You should try that. And I was like, wait a minute, that's a revolutionary idea. Why would I not have thought of that? (laughs) And so literally the next day I spent like 18 hours. I mean, like woke up really early and spent all day building out somewhat of like a business plan for life with fire and uh, working on a logo on Canva and buying the, um, like getting a platform prepared, like the going domain, on Simplecast, the, the domain, all that stuff. I had like within a day or two, I had like a website and I had a platform or a hosting platform and I had all of like all of these ideas listed out some first guest ideas. I had sent out emails for first guests. I had like a really good sort of foundation built within like two days. Cause I was just so passionate about that idea once it was presented to me again, it didn't come to me naturally. My friend Tim was just like, it sounds like you have a good podcast. You should try that. And I was like, Oh, that's a great idea. (laughs) And I just like picked it up and ran with it. And, uh, yeah. And it's kind of just been something I do when I have extra time. And like I said, I have freelance, right. Uh, full time otherwise, but this is kind of starting to become more supportive or like I'm getting more support and I have a great like Patreon following. So that's nice. been awesome. Really appreciate that. So yeah, it's been good. <laughs> it's hard to navigate that though. Cause it's like, this shit ain't free, man. It's, it's, it's expensive, man. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I don't know what your hosting platform costs per year, but mine's pretty damn expensive. Oh really? I use yeah, it's like 500. You use Simplecast? $16 a month. 16 bucks a month. So mine's like, what is it? 430 bucks annually. And it's was it transistor. So I host mine off a of transistor and it's, it just was the one that made most sense for me. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just like, I, I think that there's a big disconnect with a lot of the listeners that I have at least thinking that this is like my day job and like, no, this is not my day job. I wish it was, but this shit is hard and it's kind of expensive. If my wife only knew how much I've paid out of pocket to start <laughs> this whole kit and caboodle, she would probably fucking divorce me. <laughs> She doesn't need to know, <laughs> but it's hard though. It's like, that's the whole thing though. It's like the whole, like remaining independent, but also trying to acquire sponsors and all that stuff. It's, it's hard. And, you know, I, I think we, we do actually have a mutual sponsor between us, uh, mm-hmm. mystery ranch. Mystery ranch. Yeah. Whoop. They've been I'm, supportive since day one, man. They are same awesome. Here. Same here. Like literally didn't ask any questions. They were just like, how can we support you? And that was like such a such an empowering thing to have when you're just starting out and you're like, I don't know if this is a good idea or not. And mystery ranch was, I don't even know how they heard about it. Like, I don't even, I don't even know how they did them. either. I didn't say shit. And they just like emailed me. 
yeah. I think. And they were like, how can we support your podcast? Uh, which was amazing. And I can't thank them enough for their support. And I'm sure you feel the same way. Oh yeah, absolutely. And there's another thing too, is like this shit doesn't pay the bills. And like, I still, to this day, it's been three years running for me. And I, I, I still have yet to take a paycheck from this whole thing. I've yet to like, yeah, it pays for equipment and like hosting shit and like all that stuff. And it pays for like expanding infrastructure and all that stuff and trying to make it bigger, better, faster, stronger, whatever you want to call it. Right. Mm -hmm. But have I ever taken a pay, a a cut from this? No, hell no. In fact, I've probably gone into personal debt because of it, but I'm passionate about it. It's like my passion project. And it's probably the same for you, at least passion wise. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've like, uh, I haven't really lost that passion that I had from that first two days that I decided I wanted to do it. And I just like kind of went all in. Like, I feel like, I feel like I often think about doing like seasons instead of the system, the structure that I have, which is just kind of like a rolling free form. Yeah. Um, I'm like, Oh, I could do seasons where I just take like three or four months off at a time. And I'm like, eh, I just like take time off when I feel like it, I will just take a month or two off without any warning. <laughs> it's a time thing though. That's a, that, that whole time thing. That's I, I think is kind of like my struggle, at least with like recording episodes and stuff like that. I, I have, I have real difficulty balancing work, two kids, dude, two dogs, I don't know how you do a it. wife. I don't sleep. My God, man. It's, it's like, awesome. I'm no, like, it's not awesome. It sucks actually. I'm but. like completely, I'm just like, got a boyfriend, no kids, but I do have roommates and I like, I'm super awkward about recording episodes when my roommates are home. Just give them like the. And so I like awkwardly will just like wait until they all leave and I'll like only record on days when they're, when they're, when they've all left. It's so bad. It's, it's so like, inefficient. Mom and dad are at home. Let's record. It's so inefficient. However, I've gotten better about that and I'm getting uh, to the point where like they have heard me record enough that they don't really care. I know that they don't care. They never cared. Um, but Are they at least polite and like cordial. And oh, they're super it? polite. I'll okay, like put God. my head out. I'll be like, all right, I'm recording you guys. And they're just like, okay. As if they like are noisy anyway, which they're not. But it was like for a while there, I didn't record while my roommates were home because I was like embarrassed. I'm like, well, I'm embarrassed by my own voice. And then I was like, wait a minute, I'm recording a podcast. So like hundreds of people are going to eventually hear this. Like, why am I nervous about my roommates hearing it? So uh, I got over that, thankfully, because that was a very inefficient Brooke style, (laughs) turns out. (laughs) Oh, man. You want to talk about, uh, I guess, people in your house that are not polite is a 18 month old and a three month old. Oh my God. I don't know how to anybody that I've had to like reschedule with or like cancel outright for a screaming toddler. I apologize, but it's, it tends to be difficult. I mean, do this shit out of my like spare bedroom. So. Right. Yeah. Your roommates are a little bit more of a menace than mine are. A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. So life with fire, right? So what inspired you to create your podcast? Like what was the whole premise behind it? Just kind of on a whim thing or it was just that I had so many things that I wanted to write about. And I was like, I don't have time to write about all these topics in the ways that I want to. And I was like, I feel like I'm taking a bit of a quality cut, uh, by doing podcasts on those topics instead. I feel like it would be cooler to explore them more deeply into, in a, in a writing form. However, I'm like, I only have so much time and this is something I'm passionate about, or like, clearly I'm interested in trying this podcast thing. And then since then, it's like, I, it's been so easy to find guests because, people in this space are really passionate about the work that they're doing and are like super stoked to talk about it and always find time to talk, talk to me. Like it's very, very rare, if not non-existent that people don't have time to talk to me. Like they will like 
I mean, I talked to people that are like going to conferences, like these scientists that are like insanely busy, have babies and go to conferences and have classes and like are grading stuff. I don't know, but like crazy lives. And they're like, okay, yes, I can talk to you in a month and a half. They will like schedule out exactly um, six weeks, one and a half months at like 1 p.m. on a Wednesday. They're like, I have this one opening. Like they are psyched to share their work. And I think that's like what makes that, what makes my podcast really easy to run is that I talk to people who are really passionate about sharing what they're doing and what they're working on. And, uh, to do so in a way that feels accessible. Like, like I said, people aren't going to, the normal, the standard, you know, average Joe isn't going to like look up this complex fire research and try to distill it into something that makes sense to them. I don't think the average human out there has the capacity to distill it into something digestible. Totally. But like scientists are very, very good communicators. Um, by and large, I would argue like the folks that I've talked to are very good at communicating their science and their research in a way that feels accessible and is not super filled with like lingo. Like, mm-hmm. I think, I think realistically, even though I've talked to some scientists who are like pretty deep into some like intense research, I think, uh, I think that it's, it's all still fairly accessible to the general public. That's what I really try to aim for. I try to ask questions that might, I might already know the answer to, but that other folks might not. Um, I try to like, you know, if they say a word that I don't get or that I don't, that I don't know, I'm like, yo, can you give me a definition of that before we move on, please? (laughs) So, uh, yeah, just, uh, I love the opportunity to talk to scientists and allow them the opportunity to share what they're working on, uh, in a, on a platform that feels hopefully accessible to the, to the general, to a general audience. I think it is very, I think it's very accessible. And I think that, you know, the, the layman's terms that you present this very complex and nuanced scientific data. Uh, it, it, I think it's very educational. I think it's very easily di- digestible. I mean, you've had Stephen Pryne on your, on your show. Yeah. Stephen Pryne was like guest number three. I was yeah. just swinging for the fences when I got like, when I was on that absolute binge, just like chugging coffee and like working at my computer for that first day, I was like, who are the three guests that I want on? And I got the three guests that I want on. It was Lania, um, Jeremy McBain, Jeremy McBain and Stephen Pine. Oh, and then John McClain. John McClain. John yeah. fucking McClain came on my podcast. Legend. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, <laughs> I've got his book I was up like, here, actually. <laughs> I was like, we could talk about fire, but we could also talk about like Montana and like trout fishing and like writing. Like there's so many topics that I would love to pick your brain about. Um, we ended up only talking mostly about fire and, and his dad. I mean, just to like be one uh, degree of separation from like Norman McLean. I was like in heaven, <laughs> especially with the writing background too. I mean, Norman McLean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's I mean, huge. I mean, young men in fire was like one of the first books I read when I got into fire. And then I think fire on the mountain was number two. So it was just, it just made a lot of sense. I was like, who are my all-star guests? And I got the four that I wanted for my first just four. right off the bat. Yep. But I will tell you more about my all-star guests moving forward. Ooh, let's hear it. Um, I really want to talk to like Randy Moore. <laughs> I emailed him. Of course, I'm a little bit more confrontational than probably you. <laughs> so, and I emailed Randy Moore at his FS uh, account. And I'm pretty sure I got one of his like aides or something mm-hmm. like that. One of his assistants, yeah. assistants or whatever. And they're all like, yeah, we'll get back to you. Never got back to you. Radio silence. <laughs> yeah. They probably didn't want to talk about Tim's act, but 
Oh God. So I saw Randy Moore on a fire last summer on the Caldor. He came for a little visit. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was there taking imagery for the local forest and I was (laughs) like all day long, I was rubbing elbows with him. Like I was so close and I had to resist the urge to ask him to come on my podcast because we were right next to each other. Like the whole time. I was like there to take photos of Randy Moore, like shaking hands with people. It's like that impulse control and is just the like impulse control. So on the edge. And you know, I'm ADD and I was like all day, I was like, just fight it, Amanda. Like we can't like now is not, not the, the time. Place. Not the place. Not the time. Not the place. Uh, and there was one at one moment where he shook my hand and I introduced myself and that moment, it was so hard to not ask him that question. <laughs> I was like, I would get in so much. I felt like I was going to get in trouble because I was kind of like, I was there for a very specific reason. And I was to be kind of in the background. Didn't really want to cross that. Didn't want to cross that boundary. So yeah. Randy Moore though, one of these days I'm going to try to convince him to come on the show. And if, uh, and my, my other guest that I'd love to have on is Hillary Franz, who's the, um, she's the head of the Washington DNR. Yep. And I'm in, I'm in cahoots with their communications department. Ooh, so I'm trying to, inside line. trying to get in, trying to get in there. And by nice. cahoots, I mean, I think somebody from their communications department maybe DM'd me at one point. And I was like, Hey, any chance I could talk to Hillary? And they were like, yeah, let us know. <laughs> and I've never let them know, but I have their email and I am going to send that email very soon because I would love to talk to her. Cause I feel like they've done a really good job up in Washington in terms of their messaging and their outreach about wildfire, um, at least on the east side, I would say now it's becoming more important as we get fires like the Bolt Creek fire on the west side. Oh, yeah. So I'm I'm really curious kind of what their initiatives are in terms of preparing for west side, more west side fire in, in the Cascades. Oh, it's going to be coming. I mean, you're, we're, I, what was that? 20, 2020. Was it 2020? We, had, we were having uh, Olympic Peninsula, like massive. Oh, no, that was 19. That was 20. I remember in 2016, my first season in fire, seeing videos of fire climbing up moss on trees in the Ho rainforest, Yeah, like ladder fuel, moss, wet ass moss. And <laughs> here it goes. Wet. Yeah. Yeah. Here and it goes. Just it's just like climbing, climbing into the crowns via moss in, in the Ho rainforest. So that was 2016. I don't know. God, that's sketchy. Yeah. So I think that's like a reality that a lot of people in the West side of the Cascades don't uh, fully have in the back of their minds all the time. Don't fully acknowledge maybe. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I I think uh, as far as dream guest goes, I I definitely like to interview one day Joe Nagus, of course, because he introduced Tim's act. And Mm -hmm. um, if he's, if he has a time, I know he's a Senator, sorry, representative. And uh, it's gotta be a really, really time consuming career path. I couldn't only really imagine what a representative would have to deal with every day. But, uh, yeah, I think it's, he would be one of the people that I would want to, uh, interview also grant BB, mm-hmm. of course, uh, I'm more on the focus of the BLM side, the Bureau of Land Management side. So I think those would be some pretty good guests and, uh, yeah, just kind of, I, I think that these, I guess the moral of the story is that like, I, I guess these guests that you and I are like pining after, so to speak is, an effort in PR. I think that especially the forest service 
they have a huge issue with PR. Dude. Like, why the hell are we doing this? Why aren't you communicating Don't this to the public? Actually, get me started. I'm ready. No, to, go ahead. Ready get on to, your soapbox because what is Cal Fire at the end of the day? They're a PR agency with a firefighting very background. Good at PR. They're super good. And that's why everybody, their brothers, mothers, and their sons and their daughters and Ghost. everything, they know what Cal Fire does. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. Like we have 14,000 firefighters, 13 to 15, whatever it is every year. We are arguably the largest. If you combine the, all the federal resources, mm-hmm. we are arguably the largest organized professional firefighting service in the world. Yeah. And just imagine how much potential there is for, for positive, I don't know, not only content, but just relations like teaching these folks and utilizing the content that you get from the fire line and, and, providing more of that on the ground perspective and context and context. And instead they kind of shut people down, um, in terms of, you know, taking photos on the line or like having creative license over what they do, uh, the photos or the videos that they take on the line. And that's like really the only way that people have an idea of what we do. Like we, as a PIO, we have these, um, reporters show up and, you know, they're trying to do it like the legit way and they'll show up and they'll ask us if they can go out on the line or something. And we'll put them out on the line on a day that they're mopping up. Like yeah. we'll put them with a hotshot crew, but they're going to be mopping up. They're going to be doing very sort of menial work because yeah. they don't want to put that photographer or whatever journalist into a bad spot. Yeah. Um, but who's actually telling the story about what's going on out there like every day. And that's going to be the folks that are on the line doing it every day and that are doing the burnouts and digging the hotline and doing the mop up and whatever it is. Um, it's not really necessarily being reflected in the national media in the sort of public perception on, on, um, all the agency pages. Like there's just so much opportunity there. And it's a lot of missed opportunity too. Mm-hmm. That's what the thing that's like really tragic about this whole thing is because like, look at our prescribed prior programs, right? Our prescribed fire programs that one, they were halted for what, six months. Yeah. Yeah. Completely shut down. Nothing. Right. Which kind of makes sense considering the time of year it is. But Mm -hmm. however, when we have these escaped fires like the Hemet's Peak, Pat or the Hermit's Hermit's Peak, Peak, yeah, Hermit's Peak, Calf Canyon, we have these escaped wildfires that result in tragedy. Mm -hmm. That's a real bad black eye for the agency. It is. But that's the whole thing too, is like shit happens. Mm -hmm. We can't be a hundred percent perfect at a hundred percent of the time. There's just No. no way. And we're setting our firefighters up to fail right now. Well, take it back to your hotshot days, right? Mm-hmm. When you were on zigzag, what what was ingrained in you from day one when media shows up to a fire? That if you talk to media that you owe everybody a beer. You, you disappear, <laughs> right? It's like the greatest game of hide the hotshot ever hide. or any freaking wildland firefighter. Right. As soon as media shows up, ghost town. Yeah. No one right. is to talk to them, which, you know, it's a missed as a opportunity. shot, I'm like, I get it. I get that we're there to work. Yeah. But as a journalist, and this is a constant sort of battle that I'm fighting internally is like, is like, should we be providing reporters with more access so that they can tell the right stories because we're not allowing our firefighters to tell those stories. And similarly, um, like, should we be encouraging firefighters to really like, kind of learn how to be in front of a camera and kind of learn how to be advocates for all these initiatives. Like we have 14,000 people that could be potentially, you know, good fire advocates. They could be 
talking. Um, they could be sharing that on the ground experience, which is really essential. And as firefighters, you know, like the public trust you, the public, like there's an inherent trust there. Yeah, you're a civil servant. Yeah. So that it does feel like a big missed opportunity. And it's something that I, you know, I don't like, it feels a little like victim blamey kind of, I guess, but like I would encourage like the fire community to really take those opportunities. And when the reporters come out with you, like to really like welcome them and show them what it's like and tell them your story, not be a dick and to not them. be a dick or not be really closed off and not encourage necessarily that culture of, of running away from media because the only way we're going to get these stories out there is by, is by having these firefighters telling their stories. So I'm, yeah, that's something I really would hope to encourage in the future with firefighters is to like, not be so turned off by media. And I think, I think Eldorado hotshots, you know, I think they probably get some slack. In fact, I've heard that they get some slack for being like the, the Hollywood shots, but yep. a lot of the reason that there's a greater public perception for what hotshots are doing in the Solely struggles because of them. Yeah. And the struggles that hotshots face and the struggles that firefighters face is because of Eldorado going on vice and going on whatever other media. Yep. Fox. And they've been on so many willing, major publications. Yeah. They're willing to bring in these reporters and, and, and chat with them and have them tag along. And that's really cool to see. And so, you know, not giving as much slack to things like that, I think is really, is really important moving forward and really encouraging people to, you know, and building that media literacy or building that ability to stand in front of a camera and talk about what you're doing is, is a really critical skill too in the future. If you move out of fire or even if you stay in fire, that's it's a really public speaking essential skill to have, you know? Yeah. So if we could just maybe not even not provide training necessarily, but certainly have it be mentioned like in, you know, maybe in your critical 40 or your critical 80, um, just like a quick little rundown of like what to do if the media comes and talks to you. Yeah. Like don't what look to say. like a slack jawed a-hole and, yeah. you know, spit the chew out for like 35 seconds or yeah, whatever yeah. you're going to pee on for camera. <laughs> don't brag. Don't brag. <laughs> don't talk about yourself. Don't but. talk about your OT. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing though is I, I think that I think shaping a narrative around like what we do and why we do it is very important to gaining, garnering public trust. Right. Yeah. We have to have that or else we're going to fail as an agency. And we've been continually failing because of lack of PR efforts, right? Mm -hmm. Cal Fire is like the golden boys, golden boys and girls of the West Coast. Like people predicate their fire programs based off of what Cal Fire does. Mm -hmm. And why? Because they have an overall success rate because they've probably shaped the narrative to their favor. Mm -hmm. I hate saying that because it's kind of skewing the whole result of what's actually happening on the grounds. I'm not saying that Cal fire is a bad agency or anything like that, but they have a unique set of challenges that they have to overcome and they continually overcome them. Yeah. And they publicize it. They do a really good job with and the PIOs. Yep. A hundred percent. And here's another thing too, is like, yo, Capitol Hill times are changing. I'm sorry, but millennials, they're not just eating avocado toast and drinking Starbucks. Okay. We are having our first and second kids. We've graduated from college. We've bought our first house. Trying to buy our first house. Or trying to buy our first house. <laughs> but we're, we're grown ass men and women. We're grown ass men and women, but we are growing up. We grew up in a digital era where Facebook and Instagram and shit was like the major thing. So we need to change tactics. And if you want to harness a good potential for PR and opportunity of spreading your message, adapt with the times. Mm -hmm. Print yeah. media is dead. The news is only going to get you so far. Get a social media program going and talk to the future of potential wildland firefighters and your public trust holders. Mm -hmm. Totally. Period. Yeah. 
I mean, I might do marketing for a living. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's you're yeah, you're totally right. It feels like we're 10 years behind the times in terms of federal agencies. Fucking 20, 20. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, in, in more ways than one. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's that, Culture, but it's, it's a bureaucracy fire. though. I mean, what do you expect though? You have this big gigantic organization where, yeah. Yeah. The wheels of bureaucracy can only turn so fast and there's Absolutely. a lot of cogs. Absolutely. And you have, I mean, to be sort of devil's advocate here. I mean, you do have certain messaging that is, that's very difficult to, I don't know. It's just it, from a PIO perspective, it's just like you learn pretty quick, like how much criticism you can get from what can feel like the most simple sort of uh, non-complex post. Everybody's a, cure, everybody's a, critic. a critic. Everyone, you can, so you you could can, invent the cure for cancer and someone's going to shit on you. Someone's going to find a way. So like, I can understand their like need to really dial in their messaging and to make sure that everybody is representing the agency. Well, I can get that, but you also need to have the good with the bad. Yeah. You, you have do. to, mm-hmm. it's a struggle for those men and women out there on the front lines. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's only going to get worse. And it's like not only building public trust, but building public awareness of what we do, of what they do. Um, And that's huge. I've seen a huge push recently in the media to talk that are, you know, folks are finally talking about the struggles of wildland firefighters. Like, I think the first story I ever saw about it was um, a friend of mine, actually, Heather Hansman, wrote a story about um, wildland firefighter suicide for the Atlantic in like 2018. I remember that, yeah. And I think that was the first story I'd ever seen like that. And since then countless stories have come out like that. And it feels like it's a direct result of grassroots having like an explicit sort of PR arm almost of like, they have folks available to talk a lot of the time. Not an arm, but a Hydra. (laughs) (laughs) But like having folks available to talk about these issues because firefighters are often obviously not able to do that in the middle of, of the fire season. But but yeah, having that, uh, having people like Reva talking about these issues in front of Congress and in yeah. front of, uh, in, in, the, in NBC news, like that's so essential. And the more folks we can have doing that, the better. And yeah, I've just seen, I've just seen, cause I'm massively involved on Twitter, which is maybe a weakness of mine, but I feel like I've seen on Twitter, just I cannot figure an out exponential, <laughs> an exponential increase in the coverage of wildland firefighting and the, co- the coverage of the struggles that those folks face. And I do think that's a direct result of work from grassroots and just more people being willing to tell, to tell their stories, which is cool. Well, it's one of those things. It's like, we need to have a real conversation. It's not intended to be adversarial. It's not intended to be confrontational. It's, it's intended to just reality, man. Yeah. It's, it's reality. It's just a basis of reality. And I know there's a lot of misconceptions out there. It's like, Oh, well, why are you guys bitching about this, that, and the other? It's like, because we do this shit year after year for 20, 25 years over and over and over and over and over again. Well, and I'm just so sick of like the old fire dogs talking. That's a generation that needs to about the pastures. Whining, because that's totally the fire culture. Like we can't whine. We just got to. Everybody sport it. bitches. <clears throat> Everybody. Yeah. So I'm sick of hearing. I'm I'm sick of hearing that. And I'm, and and part of it is like, dude, the fires that you guys were fighting in the 80s. Nothing. Like yeah, they were big and they were intense, but you had like one a year. Yeah. Maybe two. And now it's like every single fire assignment you go out on from May, you know, you're still, you're maybe doing some prescribed fire in May, but then in June you're going to the Southwest and you're fighting things like the calf Canyon fire. And then you're right into Utah and then you're into the Northwest or the Northern California scene. And it's just like, it's an onslaught and it's, you're getting really intense 
fire assignments, every single assignment and you don't get as much downtime and it's exhausting and it's a different game now. Like you have, we have more intense fires now. It's just totally different game. So to think that this is a sustainable, you know, operation is like based on the structure of the eighties and nineties and the culture of the eighties and nineties is a total fallacy. Yeah. Yeah. It it 100% is in the eighties and nineties. Those, those were like the glory and even early two thousands, I want to say were like the glory days of wildland firefighting, right? Right. There's people that would be gone, gone for 60 days Mm -hmm. on assignment, Mm -hmm. 60 days. I mean, granted that it wasn't just one assignment, but it was still a role, right? Yeah. They'd be going bouncing fire to fire to fire to fire to fire for 60 days straight. Okay. But that is intense. That is intense, right? (laughs) Okay. I'll give them that. That is very intense. I'll allow it. And they would do 48 hour shifts and they didn't have. No one would bitch. There was no two to ones. There's nothing, right? Totally. Yeah. But like progress is important and making this a sustainable job is important. And as conditions change, yeah, we're going to have to kind of like skirt that, uh, that old fire culture a little bit and try to get into something more progressive here because it's totally not sustainable. And that's very obvious. And the fact that we have retainment issues and we have huge deficiencies in the amount of firefighters that we have. And it's, yeah. Well, I think that's too, it's like, uh, I mean, even from the firefighters perspective, I mean, well, the public's perspective, perspective, I guess, wildfire was like kind of a hidden issue. But now that we've had this huge population growth, more incur- incursion on the wooey um, mm-hmm. and all these other things, I mean, just years and years and years of whether you want to call it mismanagement or climate change or a combination of all, all of the of things, the <laughs> all of the above, all of the little factors and nuances, which is far too complex for you or me to come up with a one size fits all solution for. Yep. Just can't do it. No. You can't do it. But coming from the firefighters, I've had salty, like salty hot shots and smoke jumpers and FMOs come on the show and tell me the same repeatable thing. I mean, I, f- for fuck's sake, I've had Nelda <laughs> St. Clair sitting right there and Ron Boyer, one of the longest hot, hot shot superintendents in the history of hot shotting sitting right there. And he's like, y'all are listening. You need to listen to this because you are in a different game today. Yeah. Like every time you step off that buggy, that truck, that helicopter, jump out of that plane, things are different now. You're going into a potentially life-threatening environment. Yeah, yeah. It's beyond the point of like kind of mitigating risk. I think in a lot of cases, and you really hang your hat on that as a hotshot or as a firefighter, you hang your hat on like, I have really good leadership and I trust that they're able to mitigate the risks that they are able to mitigate. And of course, that's not everything always. But what is mitigation of risk at the end of the day? It's deferral right. of risk, really. Deferral, exactly. Yeah, you're just passing it on to something else. Exactly. So, so yeah, I mean, that's something that you just have to accept day in and day out and that's exhausting. Um, but that, I mean, maybe that has always been the case, but certainly with, uh, with conditions the way that they are management, climate change, wooey, dealing with homes, having that emotionally charged response when you're dealing with communities and homes you're and fighting fire in your own livelihoods, firefighting, firefighting in your own backyard, firefighting while your bunkhouse is burning down. Yep. Uh, firefighting while your family is evacuating. Like these are things that, I mean, they probably have always been a reality, but that is a pretty significant amount of emotional potential trauma that you're dealing with and that you're working through. And then you're dealing with in the off season without your, you know, your crew there to help you out. Oh, it's yeah. crazy. 
Well, it's crazy, it's crazy though. It's like, like the whole, the whole message remains the same though. I mean, it's like time and time again, if we're hearing these salty old superintendents, FMOs, smoke jumpers, hotshots, whatever saying that, Hey, it's a different game. Like back when I was like at my prime and I thought I was hot shit and I was the stud of my career, fires were different. They were like, Oh, what's a big fire back in comparatively speaking, 70,000 acres, 70,000, 60,000 acres. The largest fire I think he said was like Ron, Ron Boyer. He was saying that it was like 120,000 acres. And he's yeah. like, that was a fucking huge fire. Yeah. We were General, on the thing for 500,000, 500,000, yeah. 500,000 acres, 700,000 acres, fires now. Millions, a million that plus. That pick up and move yeah. through dense vegetation faster than you can make a decision. Yeah. Uh, you can't do shit. And with the erratic weather and all of this. Yeah. It's, uh, it's freaking wild. <laughs> well, I think that also there's some, uh, I guess, misconceptions about what tools we have to utilize on the line. Right. I mean, <laughs> like aviation. Do you want me to tell you about aviation? I saw this nonprofit the other day that is exclusively geared towards lobbying for more aviation usage on fires. And I didn't look into their website too much because I was too mad about it. Um, but that is effectively their entire stance is that they are lobbying politicians to s put more money towards aviation resources for fires. And I'm like, yo, that is all political. Like hundred percent, like aviation, like they help a lot. No they doubt. Do. Oh yeah. But they you need do. somebody on the ground telling them where to go and you need somebody on the ground digging hotline you need and expertise. mopping up and expertise <laughs> and I could not believe that. I was so mad about that. I don't even know where I found that, but I was just like, this well, exists. That's the thing too. Is <laughs> like, I think some sort of op-ed about this. <laughs> and bringing you back to the whole PR thing too. I think that we have a, uh, we've done ourselves a detriment in the fact that like, oh, well now you have all like Joe public being able to armchair quarterbacks. Like, well, why don't you just get some helicopters on there? Uh, Sikorsky will put that out lickety split. No, no, it will not. You're I want you to go do an experiment. I want you to make a campfire in your backyard, you know, sizable one, maybe mm -hmm. like, I don't know, three foot diameter. I don't know. Throw a pallet on there. Maybe throw a couch. Pallet, see a couch. What happens. Yeah. I don't know. Some <laughs> fucking ammo or something like that. That's going to cook off. Whatever. Have fun. Don't do anything stupid. Disclaimer. <laughs> Disclaimer. And then I want you to take a piss on that fire. Cause that's effectively what you're doing with some of this aviation, with the fire behavior that, and the fuel loading that we are seeing today. Absolutely. You're pissing in the wind. Yeah. Like it's cool to have aviation resources for IAs. Um, it's cool to have them for, you know, helping crews out on certain seats sections of the line. Day. Out here in the desert in Nevada. Seats, seats win great. the day. Cool. They're great. But you still need somebody on the ground and- you're not going to put out these 150, 400,000, 700,000 acre fires with boatloads of seats because we don't have that many seats, first of all. And in timber, like how much does that even do? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they're effective to a degree. Absolutely. If and it's on a constant sortie. And it's an effective PR stunt. That's for damn sure. Especially in Southern California, you know, throw a seat on there, put some retardant down. Everyone's like, cool, they're fighting the fire. Yep. And then you have, 800 people on the ground that are just <laughs> getting their asses kicked <laughs> and, uh, and doing like the work that contains the fire ultimately yeah. and walking through all that friggin' retardant 
it's slipping it and falling over. on yeah. your ass. It smells like maple syrup. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Well, it depends on where it comes from. That's like I've noticed That's in the true. Pacific Northwest up in region six, it kind of smells like maple syrup, but down here it smells like piss. Oh no. And you're just yeah. like wading through that shit. Like I remember mm-hmm. being on fires, just wading through brush covered in wet retardant <laughs> and just getting it all Why? up. Why? <laughs> but yeah, even in my eyes and shit, I'm like, this can't be good for me. <laughs> You know, like on your hard hat and everything, it's just like everywhere. It's like sand at the beach. It's just <laughs> everywhere. But yeah, these these old salty hotshots and whatever, all these old salty firefighters are saying, even on, like even on the pay level. I mean, it's not like for wildland firefighters back in like the eighties through early two thousands, it was equitable, right? Yeah. Yeah. You worked your ass off because there wasn't a lot of regulation on how much you could work. <laughs> right. But you could support a family. It was like logically, it was logical and it was attainable to mm-hmm. provide for a family. And if you needed to take time off, I mean, it wasn't like it was kind of frowned upon, but you could still have the ability to do it. Yeah. Nowadays, it's, no, it's like it's completely mm-mm. impossible to support a family on a fire income until you're like a GS six, I would argue. Even then I was a GS six. I, I, I could not provide for my family if it's I was still a, a GS six. It's not a There's career no, It's, it's a it young man like and a, a young woman's sport Yeah. at the end of the day. And yeah. That shit doesn't change. Well, congratulations. You're just losing your workforce. Twisting that little knife and you're going to bleed out slowly until you don't have a firefighting force anymore. Absolutely. Completely un- unsustainable. Like, um, yeah, just like watching some of the guys on my crew and like, like having babies as a GS five and being in station all summer and not being able to see their baby and, you know, like, and then having to leave ultimately because they couldn't support their family. Like it can't be this thing that we do when we're in our twenties and nomadic and having a good time. That was why I got into it. I was like, it's like a fun adventure. Yeah. It's great. Fun adventure. And then you get to 30 or so and you're like, this is not how I want my life to look like I, I don't, don't want to be have a part-time dad, a part-time husband and a part-time family yeah. person friend. Yeah. Just full-time firefighter. Exactly. And just dropping in on your family, like once a month, maybe, um, being like, hi, I'm here. Like, <laughs> let's do as much as we can in the next two days. Two days yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it's really, uh, it Did really you- is a young man slash woman's game right now. And it's, uh, that is not a, probably a very sustainable way to create a workforce. <laughs> no, it's not. And that's another thing too, is like, even in the winter time, when you have that off time, it's like, yeah, it's like either pick your, it's like those choose your own adventure books, right? Yeah. It's like flip to page 96. If you want to be a ski bum for the winter mm-hmm. or flip to page 102, if you want to collect unemployment and hope to God that Play you video survive. Games. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just not it, with the way things are going in this country, uh, as far as like inflation and the uncertainty of our future and how rates of pay have not kept up with inflation, it's, it's just, it's not sustainable. And if we don't fix it, I I think that the future of wildland firefighting, as far as a federal capacity, it's going to be real hard to attract a future generation of firefighters because they're going to go get some badass job doing, I don't know, social media management or something like that, or go work at, at fucking Burger King, making $20 an hour flipping or at burgers Fire. or at Cal Fire, right? <laughs> they're going to go to a different agency, even state agencies, private agencies, private agencies contractors. It doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. It's all going to be way better 
than the feds. And I hate to say that, but it's the unfortunate truth. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I, most of the folks that I fought fire with over my four seasons are, are out and including that's including a lot of my leadership. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just seeing, I'm just seeing people sort of dropping out left and right here. Either private sector or going to a different agency. Um, private, a lot of them are just ditching, like completely bailing and going to, you know, any other number of things, um, arborist work or yeah, private industry, um, owning their own businesses, that kind of thing. Teaching, uh, I think some folks that I worked with on zigzag are. Shit. Mag, uh, uh, Mike West up that. here in, uh, Susanville. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's, a, he's a teacher now. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's cool to see people utilizing their fire experience outside of fire though. Like, I think that's an essential. That's something I talked to Harry rain about a couple of weeks ago for yeah. the podcast. And I think that's an essential perspective and life skill to have when you, when you go to graduate school for land use or any number of other things. I think um, it's really widespread as far as the, like the, the skills and the things that you learn in wildland fire. I mean, you become a jack of all, you, you become a yeah. professional problem solver. And they, tra- that those skills translate to everything. Oh yeah. Like I find myself often thinking like, what would Sandra do? Sandra was my squad boss on zigzag. She's badass. I love her. And I often think like, what would, you know, like how would she approach this situation or like, how would she decision uh, make a decision in this situation or, um, and even not even so much like her specifically, but like, I think about like myself in that situation and like how much, how many challenges come up when you're a hotshot, especially a rookie, how many of these like sort of mental challenges come up that you just have to eventually overcome, uh, in order to like continue to succeed. And so I try to really like manifest that sort of, um, just that mindset when I'm doing other work, when I'm, when I'm writing or when I'm doing podcast stuff or when I'm volunteering or when I'm helping a friend, I'm just like, I bring those lessons that I learned from hot shotting and from wildland fire into my life in so many different ways. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Totally. Well, that's the cool thing about, uh, like at least my experience. And it sounds like your experience as well with wildland firefighting is that it, it very much so prepared you for doing whatever the fuck you want. Right. Yeah. It's so translatable. It is. It is. You're a professional problem solver, problem solver, like I was saying, but I think that it's also very important that the perspectives have changed not only within the perceptions of the public, but also within agencies. So your employer, whoever you're working for, I think there's been a very large, there's been a major paradigm shift to where the agency's not really in power anymore it's the boots on the ground. And I think that's the message that everybody needs to hear because you have the power to change what's going on on the ground now, mm-hmm. because if the agencies aren't going to listen to you, well, they're just going to complicate matters. I mean, we can sit, you and I can sit here and bitch all night about like the systemic or the administrative or the tactical or the whatever challenges that we, we experience on the line. But if you don't say anything, did it happen? <laughs> I mean, right. Yeah, totally. Just be tactful. And just like we have, I guess what I'm trying to get at is we have the power to change what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think it's at the high tide that our voices are heard. Absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we have the power of like telling our own stories and that's kind of, 
how you get that change is not being quiet about how, what you're experiencing. Yeah. Which is exactly what you just said, basically. Yeah. Storytelling has, there's a lot of power in storytelling. Oh yeah. Especially with like uh, Bethany's organization mm-hmm. with uh, American Wildfire Experience, the AWE mm-hmm. and Smoky Generation, which AWE houses Smoky Generation. I shout mean, out those, to Bethany. So shout out to Bethany. I, I fucking love her. <laughs> Bethany's oh awesome. Oh my gosh, she's rad. <laughs> but uh, like her whole organization is a catalog of wildland firefighting stories dating all the way back to the 1940s. And there's hundreds of these things. And it's not even, it's... The cool thing about that is it's not just the American wildfire experience, which it started out as now it's an international thing. So, I mean, these, these problems that you and I are bitching about right now mm-hmm. are reflected across the globe. That tells me we kind of have a larger problem. Mm-hmm, totally. Yeah. And I think there are also places that are doing, doing things well. Yeah. Oh, um, absolutely. And I think, yeah, reflecting both of those stories is important. And so I do appreciate, I really appreciate the work that she does, especially internationally. I think that's really cool to bring in that international angle because it's really easy to get pigeonholed into your own little world, region, district, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's definitely an interesting whole, uh, it, it, there's a lot of relatable things that I think that, uh, everybody here on the North American front, if you will, can relate to from South America mm-hmm. or South Africa or Australia Spain, or Spain, Greece. Greece. Yeah. yeah. All those places. And it's, it's, it seems like the successes triumphs, the good, bad, the ugly and everything indifferent and in between is reflected there. Mm-hmm. I think we need more of that. Uh-huh. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, there's just, it's sort of shrouded in this mysticism, firefighting, you know, and it doesn't seem like. That's our culture though. I mean, we're xenophobic and we're like professional or silent professionals Mm -hmm. tend to be at least. Right. And I just, you know, there's just such a greater public perception of or public um, awareness of so many other, of every other career. And it just feels like firefighting is kind of, there just is, there's a lot of mysticism around it. And I think, uh, people are really interested in learning about it. Like that's what I found in my writing is people want to know what our experiences are like. People want to be able to utilize that, that experience in different ways. So for me, that's writing, but for other folks, it might be research science. It might be land use planning. It might be, uh, working with your local, uh, your local government to build in more climate resilience, uh, initiatives, that kind of thing. So that's kind of what I found is that people are desperate for that on the ground perspective. Employers are desperate. The public is desperate. They want to know what it's like. So we need to be telling those stories. Well, I think that uh, if we're continually sharing these perspectives and these firsthand accounts of wildfire and what it's actually like, I think that it's, you know, also exposing these problems or these good things or these indifferent things to more solutions. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. This yeah. is my perspective, I guess. Yeah. And if you have more the, awareness, if you have more of the public advocating for wildland firefighters, if they're calling their senators about it, if they're um, writing about it in some, some capacity, if they're writing letters to the editors, if they're talking to their friends about it, even, or talking to their local government about it. I mean, those are, those are all small actions that make a big deal, oh, yeah. you know, just to broaden that awareness of what's going on and, and how wildland firefighters are being treated. <laughs> oh yeah. But it can be a double-edged sword. And <laughs> you and I have seen this time and time again. We've been doing this for a little bit. I mean, you, you and I are kind of like, I guess the OGs of the fire 
podcast media, whatever the hell you want to call it. Right. We're, we were some of the first people that made a, besides Bill Gabbard, of course, Bill Gabbard has been doing this shit for years, but you and I are probably as far as podcasting and audio and video and stuff like that. We're probably some of the, the, the first people that came up with this thing. Yeah. As far as that double-edged sword I was talking about, we get a lot of people in our community that are potentially taking off their hard hat and putting on their tinfoil hats. Mm. And it's kind of detrimental to the whole cause because Mm. I I don't know about what you've experienced, but sometimes the loudest idiots in the room oftentimes get the most attention, right? Mm -hmm. So when you get these conspiratorial things and these tinfoil hatty, just conjecture bullshit conjecture i think it does a real large disservice to the boots on the ground that are actually putting in the work and Mm -hmm. risking their lives to do good stuff right yeah i feel like i see a lot of self-policing there like i feel like people call that shit out oh yeah they do like i love looking at opinion or at um at various newspaper articles whatever online um what was the one i read the letter to the editor like commentary. I just look at things on like LA times and New York times, whenever they do fire coverage, I like look at the comments because I'm very curious about what like the public is like, what the general, like people who comment on New York times posts uh, on their website <laughs> and have New York times subscriptions, apparently uh, like, what are they saying about it? And I am always surprised that when people are talking shit or when people are being, are, are being conspiratorial or when people are being inflammatory, like, like trying to get a rise out of people folks come after them and they're like no dude this is not how this that's not how this goes yeah um sometimes i'll see fire folks in there like yo i worked in fire for three years that is not how this goes or i worked in fire for 15 years and that is not how this works um yeah you just get folks from like whatever it is whatever industry it is whatever stakeholder you're talking about um you'll you'll get folks kind of chirping in these comment sections and it's always it's always cool to see the folks that just comment back and are just like, that's not how this is at all. Let me tell you, let me give you a Listen reality here, check. <laughs> and that gives me a lot of optimism. <laughs> just reading comment sections. I don't know. I guess it, I, I, I guess it uh, kind of scares me though, because sometimes on like certain things, like uh, I, I can't even give you an example, I guess maybe like Dixie fire or whatever. It, it, it kind of one disappoints me and two, kind of scares me because a lot of people will tag on and that dog pile effect kind of comes in. Totally. It, it, it's pushing a narrative that can be dangerous and that is not yeah. understood by a lot of people. And I think it just, it just, it worries me at times. Yeah. I mean, I'm not talking about Facebook comments here because those are a dumpster the internet's, fire. The internet is not a real place. I mean, Facebook comments are an absolute dumpster fire. I say that as somebody who has monitored Facebook comments for various fires. As and that's a what I'm talking about. And it is a absolute, it, it is insane what people say, yeah. <laughs> what people come up with. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a part of kind of what I'm trying to do. I mean, I only get a certain number of downloads a month or whatever, but I'm trying to like just encourage people to think a little more objectively about these issues and about these topics and give them just like straightforward science straight from the guy who did the research or straight from the woman who did the research Yeah, and, and hoping, this is like peer reviewed stuff. I yeah, mean, this, I mean, this is, is not stuff like bullshit. That's not, that's, this is an arguable, like you cannot argue um, with, you know, the folks that I have on the show no. um, with some of the scientists I have on the show. You, you like, you would lose so fast in an argument with these people. Just <laughs> destroy you with logic. 
Yeah. So it's like, if I can just find a way to get folks to, you know, like maybe they have an uncle that's like super conspiratorial and maybe they're like, well, you should listen to this podcast episode about this topic and maybe a little broaden your perspective a little bit. And it's coming straight from the horse's ass. Is that how the, is that <laughs> something how, like that? Is that how that phrase goes? But it's coming straight from the scientist who like compiled all that data and did all that research and is not trying to pull your leg. Like yeah. they did a lot of work to make that stuff happen. And so, uh, yeah, just trying to out like lay that stuff out there in the, the most objective way possible and hopefully provide a resource for folks. Like, my goal is to just, you know, like as fires arise, my goal is that like, you know, when somebody hears their buddy talking about whatever, like we should have, we should have done more logging or whatever sort of thing comes up in those conversations when inevitably, you it inevitably have a comes fire up. in your community. And my hope is that folks are like, oh, you should listen to this episode of Life with Fire. Or you should maybe like read up on this a little bit. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that's like kind of a naive hope, but it is there. And it's kind of what more or less drives me in, in doing this podcast. Yeah. As far as the commentary goes and like the, like the comment you just mentioned about uh, logging, right. Mm -hmm. I know that's a hot topic, but I think that one of the critical components of the work that you do with your podcast is you expose the fact that we need prescribed fire. We need logging. We need successful management. We need indigenous programs, burning programs. We need all of this stuff because it's not a one size fits all solution. Totally. And I cannot shit on the logging industry. Like, like I respect loggers and I respect that industry and I respect the need for the products that they produce. Um, And I respect that people lost their livelihoods when things were shut down in the eighties and nineties. Like I I do get that. Um, And I've always been intimidated to talk about logging on the podcast. In fact, I haven't done a logging episode yet. And I I really would like to, I'm just trying to find the right guest for that, but I'm feeling more confident to talk about it in kind of my own way. And that is that like a lot of folks equate thinning with logging environmentalists uh, tend to equate those two things and you know, they are different. And I think, you know, maybe it does come down to a unit by unit basis, like what's going, what's actually going on. Just writing a fire prescription. One size doesn't fit all right. Exactly. But, um, but yeah, not considering, you know, like looking at it objectively and, and not necessarily being afraid of logging, but also acknowledging that it is, quite, uh, environmentally destructive in certain cases and salvage logging is a whole other story, but we do need an element of logging in, in all of this. We do need an element of, of, of thinning and burning. We do need, you know, all of these things can be, can coexist in some way. I think, I think people just gravitate to like the lowest hanging fruit yeah, and they just like, Oh, well that's a solution. Mm -hmm. It's so obvious to see that this is like right right there. Yeah. We should have just clear cut everything before it burned. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I, I totally agree with like, you know, sustainable selective harvesting. Mm-hmm. I agree with, I don't know, running your goats through your wine field to reduce, yeah you know, grasses or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I super agree with the implementation of fire and indigenous burning practices. Absolutely. I mean, it's all of these things. It's like a symbiosis. It's like, mm-hmm. we're trying to play God. We've been trying to play God with nature for what, since the 1910 early 1900s yeah yeah 1910 even the late 1800s i would argue even then yeah and we think we got this shit figured out but uh, big surprise we don't no nature's fucking us right now yes (laughs) 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 
very hard. <laughs> but it's like, it, it, it's kind of concerning, I guess, because, you know, I have kids and I know a lot of the listener base out there have kids. And it's like, what does the future have in store? Like, I can't take my kids to uh, some areas out next to Susanville where I used to go like fishing and camping and hunting and all that other shit. I, I can't take them there because it's generational damage, right? We've gotten to the point where the fires that we're experiencing, it's not just like a, I don't know, 10 year tor- turnover, like with a low intensity fire. Now it's generational. Like the land has been fucking sterilized. Mm-hmm. You and I are not going to see that place regrow in our lifetimes and probably half of our kids' lifetimes. Right. How do well, we, how do we, where do we go from here? Well, I talked to Phil Hoguera about this a little bit and I, he was talking about how like we're going to have new vegetation types coming in because yeah. we're going to like the way that forests adapt to climate change is by burning ultimately. Yeah. And it's anthropogenic climate change. So it's like just amplified. And so we're going to see forests turn to shrubs. And I think, unfortunately, I think we have to accept that shift in certain places. And that's like a really big ask though. That's a huge ask. Cause people like live in certain places because of the value that they place on forested ecosystems or on whatever ecosystem that they live in. And so when those ecosystems get nuked off and become something different, that's a huge, that's like, you know, something that you grieve for a long time. But I think that might be an essential element of adapting to fire is accepting that it is uh, like our forests are adapting by burning and that might just be our new reality. So that's not very optimistic, but I guess I would say like something that brings me a lot of optimism is just how many, how many people are out there, like how many local practitioners are out there doing really good work. Um, I'm thinking of like Lenny Quinn Davidson. I'm thinking of um, Will Harling, even Zeke Lunder doing like really cool um, content around wildfires and making sure that people are educated on what's going on. And, uh, you know, people like Jeremy Bailey, people doing all this really good local work on the ground, getting these initiatives done, um, trying to find ways to kind of work within the system to get shit done. Mm -hmm. I think that's really optimistic to me. Yeah. I think it's optimistic too. Um, I think there's going to be a cultural shift, not only in the one, not only in the way that we were talking about earlier with wildland firefighters, like telling the true perspectives on the ground and being empowered to do so. But also I think that there's going to be a cultural shift within the communities and the public saying like, Hey, (laughs) guess what? If you can deal with a little bit of smoke in the winter, guess what? We won't have a situation like we're dealing with right yeah. now where, I mean, we're in Reno, Nevada and the mosquito fire is popping off every day and we're having AQIs of 600, Yeah, 600. Right. That is like, you can't go outside if you have like a, a respiratory condition. You can't go outside in general. You can't go outside. Yeah. I it's mean, bad. that's not good. And this is a relatively small fire. I say relatively air quotes right. here, but I mean, I, I, I fought the American fire. I was on the American fire back in, was that 2013 or 14 or whatever it was. I'm sure someone will in internet land will correct me, but I remember that that fire was in some sketchy, steep land and it was very hard to control. Yeah. yeah so yeah, it's a, it's like a lot to ask of people though, to accept as much smoke as we're going to have to put into the air in order to make this in order to amend this situation in any meaningful way. Oh, hundred percent. 
So that is going to be part of it. Um, and I think education is a huge part of it. And I think what we do is, is really important in that realm, but I also cannot overstate the importance, arguably the greater importance of those on the ground practitioners that are doing the work and that are, you know, talking to their politicians and who are collaborating with other, with other agencies and with, with tribes to get good fire on the ground. And, um, yeah, there's a lot to be said about either like both meeting in person, you know, and chatting in person and ensuring that sort of the message is getting across, but also doing the work on the ground and getting things done. And I think we do a lot of talking right now in fire. And uh, like I said, I'm optimistic about the folks that are actually, that are like doing really good work and, um, and who are kind of putting action to words, but I think there's a lot more opportunity there. And I think there's a lot more opportunity to engage more of the public in this conversation because this is probably the most formidable threat of our lifetime in the West, I would argue. Arguably so. Yeah. And I would certainly argue that air quality is the greatest public health threat that we have. Oh, I mean, yeah. yeah, we have COVID, but and the flu, but I would argue that 600 AQI for even two days of the year is unreal. And well, think about the long-term health, be- health problem. effects that that has, right? I mean, yeah. uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Catherine Navarro and her work with uh, the cancer study and the cardiovascular, the respiratory yes. impacts that smoke have directly on firefighters and the public. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are things that we have to really account for yeah. moving forward in the future. Yeah. So we should be treating this like the public health threat that it is. Oh, it is. And I mean, I guess we are to a certain extent. People are, you know, people take initiative or people take action to lessen their, um, act their lessen their, uh, exposure, exposure to smoke. Um, and I think like on a greater community scale, I think we should be probably helping vulnerable communities with those initiatives as well. And ensuring that people have good filtration in their homes or have, at least a place to go in the event of days like today and certainly ensuring that certain workforces aren't working in it. (laughs) So like wildland firefighters, yeah, we kind of sign up for that, but you know, farm workers, anybody who works outside, any laborers really. And then even folks that work in offices, like can we limit our exposure by just doing more work from home stuff? Like we should be kind of treating this like, we didn't maybe treat COVID as seriously as we could have, but I mean, arguably, um, but I think we should be treating this as if it were similar to COVID because I think it has similar long-term, not similar, but like it has profound long-term effects. Oh yeah. hundred percent. I think that also, um, I mean, we don't really know what the long-term effects are. I mean, there's some baseline studies, like, like I was saying with Catherine, Catherine Navarro Mm -hmm. and her study with the CDC and NIOSH, but also that is very young data. It is young data. Yeah, absolutely. And you have all these like acute signs of, of problems, you know, with asthmatic children, um, with kids developing asthma after smoke exposure, um, with, you know, elevated problems with folks who already have health issues like COPD, COPD stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, with those things being exacerbated. So like we sort of have these acute, this acute data to be like, maybe this isn't super healthy for us. <laughs> no, and we not. understand that. I think like the AQI scale is very like indicative of that. Like you don't go outside. If, if you have asthma, you don't go outside if it's over 150 or whatever AQI yeah. and, and things like that. But, um, but yeah, we don't really have significant data to support 
what we all probably know. Because it's, it's never been studied. Which is that wildland firefighters are exposed to a lot of toxins and oh yeah, the silicates. Oh my God, you want to talk about silica. a carcinogen? Yeah, Ooh, dude. No, yeah. all the dust that I inhaled, dude. Just like being like. 14th in line. <laughs> just sucking just dust sucking down. Dust, like not even smoke, just dust, silica. Like, yeah. Dozer line. Hummus. Like that Dozer line. Moon. Poof dirt. Yeah. Moon. Ugh. What is it? Moon dust. Moon dust. Moon dust. Yeah. yeah. Where you walk in it enough or it gets enough machinery on it and it just becomes this like fine particulate that gets kicked up super easy and you just suck it in. I bet that stuff <laughs> would be like great for bead blasting and polishing things. Probably it's so fine. <laughs> it's so, so fine. fine. And you just, you just, it's so weird in fire how you just accept certain things and you're just like, oh, whatever. I'm tough. I'm young. I can, I can drink enough water and do enough yeah. exercise that this doesn't matter, but it matters. Well, it's like that whole thing is like, how, what is an acceptable level of risk, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're constantly deferring, <laughs> deferring risk for $15 an hour, but it's, yeah, it, it's it's like, how much can you take? And I know that wildland firefighters are a very prideful species mm -hmm. and they also belong to a very strong suffer culture. Right. Because you and I have lived that. We can, without a doubt, probably agree with that. Yeah. It's almost like the more suffering, the better. It's yeah, like, you, I am the most hardcore motherfucker in this planet because yeah. I'm not it's showering like, for 14 you. days serve. <laughs> I eat Copenhagen for breakfast and wash it down with a dry shot of coffee. Yeah. 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 Um, when you'd like put the, what do they call dags, dude? Oh, uh, dags. Yeah. Yeah. And then Bring like MREs, like you're like, yeah, we eat MREs for like the full roll or like, I don't know. There's just this like uh glory and suffering. Yeah. It's a <laughs> and, it, uh, and it manifests in like, walking in line through moon dust and just inhaling it and accepting it and not thinking anything of it until like Holding two years a later. Shitty burn and just not moving your place because you yep. just want to be like, no, I'm going to wear this. I'm not going to go 30 feet that direction and get some clean air for, you know, five, 10, 15 seconds. I'm just going to sit here and off smoke. Yeah. Embrace <laughs> the suck over here. But I think, uh, bringing it back to your, the original, uh, point of this was, uh, the smoke, the long-term health effects, the people that are most affected with this, typically I want to say they're people that are basically poor. I mean, I, I yeah, there's no, income, there's yeah, low indigenous income, indigenous communities, indigenous have a communities. Huge problem with like not having access to filtration systems. Yeah. Um, well, we Minority all know that communities. Yeah. Like Hispanic communities, especially with farm workers. Yep. Um, yeah. There's a lot of communities that are, like inherently more uh, exposed to these things. Oh, yeah. There's no denying the fact that uh, wildfire disproportionately affects poor people, mm -hmm. like lower income, lower rural, rural yeah, lower in income communities more so than anybody else. Totally. There's no denying that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like it affects rich people, but those rich people have insurance insurance and they and can get the fuck away from it rural communities a lot of folks in rural communities low-income communities don't have insurance no and or they're so, uninsurable period yeah i mean like looking at the calf canyon i was there on an assignment a few weeks ago and it was i was there when it was kind of in the stage where they were getting monsoonal rain and things were like they were getting a lot of post-fire flooding and 
the fire was more or less out, but you have these farmers and you have these um, rural community members, largely indigenous and Hispanic in that area who lost everything in this fire. And FEMA was like, here's $25,000. Good luck. And it's like, what is $25,000 going to do when somebody lost their entire livelihood? They lost their farm. They lost their ability. You know, they lost their home. They lost their, yeah, their livelihood. So it's, it's, it's devastating to see those impacts. And I don't know how we can improve that. (laughs) And um, unfortunately the Herman Speak and the Calf Canyon were a, a bad example in terms of like it having been started by prescribed by prescribed fire in both cases. Um, how the hell were we supposed to perceive that though? How, or not perceive that, but anticipate, anticipate that. it. No, that's what I mean by how the hell can you at the beginning that? of the episode. I think I mentioned that we're setting folks up for failure by hoping that they, with, you know, the training that they have and with these very sort of limited resources in terms of like you have, you spend years on these prescribed burn plans. Oh yeah. Especially the massive one. You wait and you wait and you wait until this, this day that you might have a window and then you start to implement and you put people on this fire to implement it. And you only have a certain number of resources because there's other fires to attend to like actual wildfires elsewhere in the country. And I don't know, like what are our expectations there? Like you have, greater fuel loading. You have erratic weather. You had six months of snow loading on top of these, of both of them. Yeah. Both of these burns. Right. And you were waiting for months and months for a weather window and, and there's only so much a human can do, Yeah, you know? And like, I heard that those firefighters were getting death threats from certain members of the community. And you know, what's really, really, really fucked up is a lot of these burn managers and these prescribed fire practitioners from an agency perspective, they have to provide their own liability insurance. There's right. no protections for them. I thought there was, is there protection in the federal and the forest service? I no. thought there was. There's See, that's what I really. mean. It's like we're setting as long folks as up you're, to fail. Well, to a degree, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're operating within your scope of practice and you are 100% dialed on everything. And there's like no negligence. Yeah, right. Yeah. And there's no, like nothing that can be perceived as negligence. I think that's probably the, like the subjective part of that is like probably what gets a little icky or a little like. Well, it's case law. It's case law, right? So you have perceptions, intent, and protocol. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that are basically going to set up that trial. The foundation of that, right? So perception versus intent versus everything else that goes into it. Yeah. Execution. protocol what right? comes of all of that yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it, one like i don't know why anybody i mean i i have mad respect for burn managers because they're t- they're shit, hanging they're their balls out they're hanging their neck their balls everything <laughs> they're hanging themselves out to be caught by some noose out there yeah because people are going to crucify them if they fuck up yeah and so you know to have the report come out about the hermit's peak and and have people like, you know, threatening the folks that did it. And I just think about being on prescribed fires and things going wrong. Like it happens. I've had escape pro- all the prescribed time, fires. Dude. Yeah. I had an escape. I was on an escape prescribed fire. We almost burned down. No, we didn't. We didn't almost. We, we were near the um, water treatment plant in Bend mm-hmm. and um, we just had an escape. It, I think it slopped over maybe a quarter to a half acre and we wrapped it and it was a, it was like no big deal. 
but you know, you have different conditions, you have different fuel loading and that could have been a big problem. Oh yeah. So any, any prescribed fire that escapes instantaneously becomes a wildfire and it becomes not a managed fire. It becomes a suppression effort, right? Yeah. That's policy. I mean, shit. I think I performed suppression activities on like every prescribed fire I worked on ultimately. <laughs> to some degree, and I never I got say hazard pay for it. Nope. Nope. <laughs> but I remember, I think I sucked the most smoke in my life in my fire career on prescribed fires when yeah, we'd have a slop over no hazard pay and for then it. you'd just go absolutely ham on these slop overs and just be sucking smoke, digging line, trying to wrap this thing you know, and there's only so many of you because it's, I don't know, it, it's, it's, we're not set up for success here. Um, no. And that's another thing too, is like, how do you manage prescribed fire at scale? How, how the hell managed you, fire, <laughs> managed fire. Yeah. But also there's, but there's a conspiratorial element there too. Well, people there's, get mad about that. yeah, there's a lot of people that get pissed off about that, but also I, I have a huge, um, I guess beef, if you will, with using catastrophic fire as objective goals. So uh-huh. take for instance, the August complex or whatever, say that thing burnt through a plot of 780 acres. Cool. Management objective uh, achieved. Mm-hmm. It's been burnt, right? Mm-hmm but has it been burnt to a degree to where it's manageable and sustainable? Mm-hmm. There is a serious thing about policy right there, which I definitely disagree with. Like if a, if a, if a wildfire becomes catastrophic and it just nukes out a, a, an area that was already prescribed for prescribed fire, mm-hmm. is that a management objective or is that a loss? I would say that's a loss. However, I feel like most fires burn in a way that is maybe high severity in some places and maybe a little bit more moderate or a low intensity in some places. Yeah. You want checkerboard, right? That's the ultimate goal. Yeah. Like the mosaic pattern is, mosaic is pattern. what you're looking for, but I, I, it, I, it's hard to definitively give an adjective to any individual fire to be like, this was and all around catastrophic. Maybe it was. And some fires absolutely yeah. are. Hog fire. Hog fire Paradise. was- ca- Campfire. Campfire. Absolutely Arguably catastrophic. Arguably Caldor. Caldor, Caldor was, was catastrophic. Catastrophic. You know, you're losing homes, extensive amounts of homes. You're mis- you're um, displacing thousands of people. Yeah. You're Dixie fire. nuking off watersheds that are going to impact water quality. You're putting up a ton of smoke. Like, yeah, these things are like kind of definitively catastrophic. But I think like- those are 1% or maybe three or 4% of the fires that burn every year. Yeah. And I think we have, you know, a significant portion of the fires that burn every year that are not even potentially catastrophic. And so I think burn managers, I think managers fire like land managers understand that nuance. And I think that they, you know, maybe the public doesn't like to hear this. Maybe like the forest service isn't stoked on us saying this, but like, I think that fire managers understand the benefit of allowing some things to kind of do what they need to do. Ecological benefit I 100% in places that aren't going to be directly impacted, that aren't going to nuke off a watershed, that aren't going to put up a ton of 
maybe, maybe put up a little bit of smoke, but not like a catastrophic or like a not 600 profoundly AQI. bad amount of smoke, um, that aren't going to impact communities like, or infrastructure. Like, I think that there's actually a lot of opportunity for that. Well, that's the only thing that's, I guess that's the original point that I'm trying to get at is you could throw all the people that you want to, to manage wildfire or sorry, prescribed fire. Right. And manage land at scale. And you're not going to do it. The only way that, I mean, what is the safest, most efficient way of doing prescribed fire? Putting fucking fire on the ground. Right. hundred percent. That's just period. With That's, the right amount of resources. With the right amount the right of resources. Yeah. yeah. Right. But all these things have to align. I mean. And, and sometimes and, they don't even after it's been deemed out. Well, yeah. And like you hear about things like the Tamarack fire yep. where maybe that was a managed fire where it started. You don't hear about the other probably 4,000, 5,000, 10,000 fires a year that are also managed. Look at Yosemite. Yeah. Yosemite has one of the most progressive and I, I want to say one of the best managed fire programs in the nation. Mm-hmm. And then probably Kaufmas second to that. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe not managed fires, but prescribed fires. Right. Yeah. Totally super progressive and they're super dialed in and they, they have an understanding, a broader general (laughs) understanding of wildland fire and prescribed fires and managing fires to objectives. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For ecological benefit. Yes. hundred percent. I mean, like there's just a ton of those fires that happen every year that nobody ever hears about, but you hear about the Tamarack one freaking time and it just shuts down all of it. You know what the prescription is usually like the go-to prescription for pinion juniper? No. Nuke it. Same with lodgepole. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Lodgepole oh, has to I, be I can't like, speak to lodgepole. I, I really, I, I fucking lodgepole hate lodgepole. is a high severity fire regime. Yeah. Like Western Rocky or um, the Rockies effectively like Yellowstone. Alberta. Some parts of central Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. Lodgepole. You're supposed to like nuke that shit off every it's now a, and then. <laughs> well, that's another thing too with a uh, lodgepole is it's a dangerous fuel type to be fighting fire in mm-hmm. because if it picks up and runs, it's off to the fucking races and it's a dangerous situation. Not yeah. only that, but even if it's like a pretty low intensity fire, those things are having a very shallow root system and they come down, they come down easy. Yeah. Easy. And you know, so damn well that they holler rot and they just break off at the top of the bowl. Casually. Yeah, lodgepole's weird. I don't, I don't spend a lot of time around lodgepole. I hate that shit. (laughs) I hate lodgepole. Oh, I actually never somehow fought fire in like the Rockies. Really? We went to Montana for like one role and we went like on one IA, I think, but otherwise I've never been to like Montana or like really like Colorado, like places that have like just dense lodgepole. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I'm not into that. (laughs) I like Ponderosas and Doug firs and cedars. My shit. And then again, I'm also a desert rat at heart. So yeah, my sagebrush man over here. Yeah. My sagebrush and pinion juniper <laughs> component. That's like my fucking bread and butter. I love that stuff. But unfortunately, the prescription for that stuff is very high intensity fire, typically. That is interesting. Yeah. I don't know enough about sagebrush ecosystems. I know that I From thought that my they experience, burnt at least. like every like when they burn too frequently, then you have the potential for like invasive grasses to come in. With the amount of major thoroughfares, I guess, major 
right? Highways and shit like that. I mean, we have a very bad cheatgrass problem and we can't get rid of it. There's no cheatgrass is flammable as shit. Super. Yeah. I've heard about that problem in Nevada, especially with um, sagebrush being nuked out and then replaced by cheatgrass, which burns very, very intensely and very, very frequently. I think it just carries fire extraordinarily well. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not like a, a major carrying component of fire over here. I mean, I'm not a land management land manager or a fire ecologist right. or any of those things that like know the science but every yeah. time from my experience being on a prescribed Which fire or <laughs> a fuel treatment program it's either a lop and scatter we call it junicide <laughs> you kill everything in sight lop and scatter it junicide. and if it's being managed and burned for <laughs> junicide genocide I've, genocide I've, I've partaken in some junicide before in southern utah Oh yeah. I went, yeah, I've done some genocide. But that's the thing though, is like juniper is an invasive species, believe it or not. Didn't know that. Yeah. According to what I've learned through my experience here in Northern Nevada, I mean, yeah, juniper sucks. It's not supposed to be here, at least in the uh, densities that it's currently in. in. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe that's why we would do like, we went to Southern Utah my first season in fire and they just basically like, we were there on severity and they just had us like, out on these units, just cutting every juniper in sight. Yeah. Down to, <laughs> yeah. Down to practically the root. I got a lot of like good fire. Everything. I got a lot of good, uh, a lot of good chainsaw experience on that fire because oh, yeah. they just gave everyone it. They, everyone got a saw and a swamper and we would just swap on, a, on and off. <laughs> just go and tank for like tank. Every juniper that you see, <laughs> just, just take it line out. out 20 people long. <laughs> Everybody gets a saw. Go nuts. It was incredible. <laughs> a lot of great, a lot of great saw experience. <laughs> but yeah. Anyways, we got off on a tangent there. And I, I, anyways, back to the root of what we're talking about there. I think that, you know, fire is a critical component of a majority of ecosystems out there. And I think that it's a very necessary part of humanity. I like, I yeah. think that, and that's why I love the title of your podcast. Mm-hmm. It's because we shouldn't be like fighting fire. We should be living with fire. Yeah. Right. It's absolutely. It's 100% a symbiotic relationship between humanity, its evolution, and its relationship to nature. Yeah. Speaking of the choir right now, I mean, that was like, I couldn't have said it any better. I think, I think building a culture around fire adaptation and fire resilience is going to be the way that we move forward in this new reality of intense and intense fires and kind of like a... You know, like these federal agencies like aren't coming to save the day in a lot of cases. They can't. How the hell they can physically they? Can't like they don't have the numbers. They don't have the bandwidth to do the work that they, you know, theoretically should be doing. But you're like, you have to have some sympathy because I know a lot of people that work for the Forest Service, and I really respect every single one of them. And it's like something gets lost from that sort of friend level to the bureaucratic level. Oh, and yeah. there's a major disconnect really somewhere along that chain of command. Because it's like, I know a lot of people that are doing really good freaking work and are like trying in every way that they can to do that good work. But I think building that culture of like knowing that maybe we can't necessarily rely on these big federal government agencies and like turning more into a, you know, turning to like those local initiatives, those local objectives, figuring out ways that we can engage ourselves in, in our, in our backyards and the fire resilience of our communities, of our, the national forests that we love. So whether that's 
you know, volunteering to clear trails, whether that's, you know, maybe getting a little prescribed fire training or whether that's talking to your local government about building those climate resilience measures, like whatever it is, I think like local, the more local, the better in this case uh, is what it comes down to for me. I think that you're absolutely right. Because if you look back at it, like our uh, critical 80 or our, like even our, our like base 40, like when we're going through wildland firefighter training, like as a rookie, right? We always talk about microclimates. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's a great, that's a great connection. Like yeah. fire is different in every drainage. Every drainage. Fire is different. I mean, you can literally go from me to that window and you might have a different fire like, behavior. Fire behavior. Oh, hundred percent. Even different fuel loading. I mean, different fuel moistures, everything. Yeah. Everything. And I think it's this, and I agree. It is totally the same in terms of stewardship, in terms of knowing your backyard, loving it because you hike there, you, you bike there, you fly fish there, you hunt there, you know, you deeply understand these landscapes on a local, on a individual level and you love them. And I think that is where stewardship, that's where the most profound stewardship can be. Oh yeah. Local knowledge based is, is that local knowledge and like fighting for that drainage that you love or that river that you love or that trail that you love or whatever it is, is way more profound than doing anything on like a regional or national level. Like, yeah, those regional and national policies that, that helps a lot. Absolutely. Undoubtedly. But protecting the things in your backyard is something that we can all uh, contribute to. And I think that's really important to remember that stewardship is really localized just as fire behavior and fire, the way that fire acts is very localized. It's a good connection. Yeah. Oh, I think it's uh, very true. It's just like politics, right? I mean, most elections are won at the local level. Totally. And the reason why is because your local is like your, obviously your local influence, right? your local affects your state, your state affects your federal and your state goes on into pot, potentially global issues. Right? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It all has to start somewhere. And I think that if we have a more grassroots approach and a localized knowledge and a stewardship program, that's kind of centered around, you know, local knowledge. Yeah. It'll affect national policy. I entirely agree. And I think a huge part of that is education, but I also think that a huge part of that is just finding ways that you can engage locally in these issues, whatever that might be. Like I was on the river a couple of weeks ago, I was on the middle fork salmon and I was like talking to this older guy. His name was Gene. He was like easily 85 years old. Like Gene was rocking it. Like he was out on the river. He's having a great time. He was like going on runs every day. I was like, damn, Gene, like showing me up. <laughs> Calm down, dude. And I, <laughs> I, we started talking about fire and he was like, oh yeah, I'm part of my local fire adapted network. Perfect. I was like, Gene, you are. Full of surprises. No kidding, dude. Like straight to my heart. I was like, tell me more, Gene. You were speaking my language. Tell me more. And him and his wife, Deb, like, just like, they're like, yeah, we volunteer and we do like mitigation work for our neighbors because we're retired and we don't have jobs. And, you know, like we have a lot of time on our hands. And so we volunteer with the local fire adapt network and we go to all these like meetings. I'm like, Gene, fuck yeah, dude. Like be like Gene. <laughs> That's the shit. 
That right there is a shit. In fact, I want to so cool. title the episode Be Like Gene with Amanda Monti. <laughs> what would Gene do? <laughs> what would Gene do? He would volunteer with his local fire adapted network and help out his neighbors with mitigation work and defensible space. See, that's a that's that's a crucial component, I think, about being, I guess, going into the the pyrocene. We're living in the pyrocene, whatever. If, I think if we want to really tackle the problems of catastrophic wildfire, especially in rural communities with heavy wooey, we really need to embrace the fire adapted culture with firewise communities. Mm-hmm. 120,000%. Uh-huh. Because if we don't understand our relationship with nature and fire and how we've evolved as a species with the yeah. coexistence of fire, yeah then we're never going to figure it out. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's simple things like, Hey, dumbass, don't shoot rocks. Don't park your fucking truck on dry grass and then let it regen. If quit you have the a diesel. Tannerite gender reveals. Yeah. Quit the tannerite, t- tannerite, tannerite, tannerite gender reveals. I mean, dude, come on, <laughs> common sense. And I think that's one of those things that we've kind of lost to a degree. I mean, yeah. yeah I mean, it's, I think it's easy to live in an urban area and not understand those processes very well. And we have a lot of people from urban areas moving out into these little slices of heaven that we call the wooey. Yeah. And <laughs> bringing some of those, uh, it's, it's not like, I guess it's, it's, there's a difference between naivety and ignorance, I guess. Right. So naivety would imply you just truly don't know, but ignorance is you're, you're like actively avoiding knowing willingly <laughs> dismissive of something that's like a detriment to the rest of the fucking people around you. Right. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think that uh, education, like you're saying, and promoting these grassroots efforts with firewise communities and fire adapted communities, mm-hmm. it's critical. Absolutely. And just like, acknowledging all the ways that we can become better stewards of our land. And part of that is education. And part of that is doing more on the ground work, but we have to really accept that we need to be more accountable to these landscapes that we love. Like these are landscapes that are, I wouldn't say they're high maintenance, but they certainly can't just continue existing outside of our worldview and like outside of our consciousness. Like we just, we can't just like sort of live in these places and hope that nothing goes wrong. Like we have to proactively and that challenge ignorance. Right. We have to proactively pursue solutions to these problems in our own communities and not just think that we can live in these places and just live like in our little slice of paradise and not do any work to coexist in that landscape with these processes that are very essential to that landscape. Wait a second. Is that stewardship? Stewardship. (laughs) Like that is all I'm asking is just that people become more involved stewards of the land that they love. Oh, yeah. I mean, even if you're to like take it back in time, I mean, listen to your indigenous populations. I mean, that's, these, that's these, what I'm drawing all my inspiration from. Like indigenous populations, uh, indigenous tribes, indigenous people are. They've been doing this shit for the masterclass. Thousands of years. Positive stories of their landscape. Yeah. yeah. If you want the best hunting experience of your life, go to an old burn scar, like the edge of a burn scar. I guarantee you're going to pull a trophy elk or a trophy deer. Elk love burn scars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They love the green shoots that come up. They chucker. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. First nations, indigenous people have known this forever and yeah. there's a fucking reason why we've really lost our connection there. <laughs> yeah. No shit. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks. Facebook. 
(laughs) (laughs) I can blame Facebook on a lot or I can blame Facebook for a lot of our problems. I feel like, (laughs) yeah, like I said, taking off your hard hat and putting on your tinfoil one, it's kind of a problem sometimes. A lot of idiots in the room, but aside from all that stuff, I mean, as far as Amanda here, where are we going from here? What is the future of you? What is the future of your side projects? I mean, you've, you've got your, your hands in a lot of pots. I mean, you're a freelance writer, you do your podcast, you're a PIO, you do all of these things. You're wearing a sage hat. So you're like, yeah, sage, (laughs) sage fly fishing hat. I mean, I wish I could afford a sage. Shout out to sage. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, sage, if you want to sponsor both of our podcasts, well, I know a guy and a girl. (laughs) anyways so what's the future like for you like what are you going to be doing next I have been I'm kind of at a crossroads where I started my writing career with a lot of like fun personal essays where I was just like I don't know writing about kind of stupid shit but like doing it in a way that felt really satisfying creatively and since getting out of fire I've started to write pretty extensively about fire and like science and data and like kind of the more hard sort of journalistic style writing. And right now I'm like simultaneously wanting to dive even further into that by potentially getting into some sort of organization that I could do copywriting for, or that I could do um, strategic communications for getting more into policy, um, kind of trying to communicate directly with policymakers about some of these issues and trying to like make that sort of ulterior, like that, 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 um, objective of mine that is basically to make fire science and policy more digestible. I'm hoping to sort of translate that into talking directly to policymakers. However, I also really just kind of want to keep writing about like fly fishing and skiing and like doing like these silly little personal essays that like, like, you know, make my, like satisfy my soul in a way that, uh, writing about like really hard science and fire doesn't. But I think in the future I'm, or in the next couple of months, I'm going to focus on prioritizing writing that, you know, utilizes or that like makes that data and that science more digestible and trying to like reach out to publications that might have a direct link to policymakers. So whether that's an organization or an educational institution or nonprofits, things like that. That's kind of where I'm heading. I don't know what that looks like yet. So I don't know that I'm going to like it, but we'll see. But I feel like I have the bandwidth to do more of this sort of like heavy writing or like this, this, this writing that can sometimes feel heavy where you're writing about these topics that are like, you know, the, the question is always, what are you optimistic about? Or like, what are the solutions? And there's not always a clear answer to that. And uh, sometimes the data is just something you have to present like, yep, here it is. Like here's some unprecedented climate data for you to absorb Devils and include, in include in your doom scrolling. <laughs> um, so it's uh, it's hard to balance all of that. And I think part of that balancing act is going to be doing like going back to my roots and doing more writing about fly fishing and hanging out in the woods, but like kind of balancing that out with, um, you know, some of this stuff that makes me feel like I'm putting my passion towards something, uh, something meaningful. Like a personal project. 
Yeah. Like something that like strikes too true to your heart besides fire. Right. Like there's this, yeah. that Japanese, um, concept of, uh, I know what you're talking about. It's the Ikigai. It's like Ikigai or something to that effect. Yeah. It's and the, it's, it's like the crossing point between your passions, your talents and what you're interested in. Right. Yeah. And impact and impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm finding that for myself right now. I feel like I'm, I'm really finding my stride in writing and talking about wildfire a lot, but I find that I write and talk about wildfire a lot to the point where I feel like I annoy my friends and <laughs> I'm like, I should probably like, I should probably offset this with some writing that, you know, you know, fulfills this other part of my soul that loves just like writing about silly shit and like introducing humor into like these mundane topics and going on trips and writing about it, like those kinds of sort of more menial, uh, personal essays and things like that. So I don't know, I'm rambling now. I feel like the tequila mule is, uh, wearing off a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> We're on the glide path to bedtime. <laughs> yeah. Well, what time even is it? Uh, it's 11. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's way past my bedtime. The, the night is young. That is way past my bedtime. No, I've been going to bed with the sun too. lately. It's been uh, the program I'm on. I usually Just go to bed at like in the nine o'clock every night. Yeah. Yeah. It was a good program there for a while. I was just like in the backcountry for like two weeks straight and I was just going to bed at like eight 30. Yeah. You got to see a <laughs> bunch of cool shit. You got to see like, all right. So little secret about Nevada, all the cool shit is very, very well off the beaten path. I learned that. Yes. By driving through rural Nevada. Nevada a is days a ago. beautiful state. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. What a surprise. Cause you only drive through like the shitholes. That's, that's all you drive through. Like there's no real beauty except for like maybe the Eastern Sierras. If you're like cruising South out of Reno, but everything else desert. You mean if you're on like a highway? Yeah. If you're on a highway, like oh, the yeah, major yeah, thoroughfares. Yeah. I was on not a highway. Yes. Like explicitly not a highway. Dodging time. elk in like Eastern Nevada on a two lane <laughs> freeway. I'm using this term very loosely. I mean, a road that you can see, you can see for probably 30 miles. Yeah. Curvature of the earth flat. Literally. Yeah. Like I'm like, I don't see the end of this road yeah, and it's, it's just straight. And it's just like going into the horizon. Like I, oh yeah. I'm going to be on this road for the foreseeable future. <laughs> oh yeah. But if you look to the left or the right of you. Mountains. Huge Canyons, mountains. Insane mountains. Like yeah. the Ruby mountains blew me away. I was, I spent the night in the Ruby mountains, like the first night I was in Nevada and I was just like, Nevada, this is Nevada. <laughs> You're welcome. Welcome to Nevada. There's pine tree groves. There's huge Aspen groves. There's water everywhere. Yeah. It's like gorgeous. I found like the most gorgeous Creek amidst Aspens in Lemoyle Lemoyle Canyon. Yeah. Glad you know how to say that because I was like, I'm going up this canyon. I don't. That's a huge base jumping place. Oh. Yeah. So yeah, I went up there and I stayed the night at this beautiful campground, Thomas Creek, I think, or Thomas Basin or something to that effect. And went on this little hike up into the meadows above the campground. I was blown away. Oh yeah. Insane mountain views, meadows, clear little beautiful creeks, aspen groves. I was like, what the fuck? This is not this is not the vet Nevada I heard about oh, yeah. growing up in Michigan. <laughs> Some of those lakes up there, I'm not going to name any of them because I want to be a decent steward. You got to go find that shit yourself. So share responsibly hashtag, but there's uh, some very interesting 
species of trout. I like this vagueness. <laughs> I'll fill you in because you're my homie. <laughs> I would love that. But for the folks that know what I'm talking about, that have extensive uh, knowledge of Nevada's back roads and little secret hidey holes. Yes, there's fishing, some, yeah. some epic fly fishing in the Ruby Mountains. Cool. Yeah. Well, cool. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That was a great convo. Not bad, right? Yeah. Cool. Well, it is getting to 11 o'clock at night, so we're going to wrap this thing up. But before we go, I always give the opportunity for you to give a shout out or a few shout outs. You take this anywhere direction, any direction that you want to go. Mm. Give a couple of shout outs to some homies, heroes, mentors. Who do you got for us? Wait, I love this. I should start having my guests do this. Um, immediate first, first to mind is Bethany Hanna. Very supportive her. right from the start in terms of like creating creative fire content. She was very supportive. She she's creating a provided legacy. me with a grant when I was just getting out of hot shotting and I wanted to do this silly project that ended up being like probably the starting point of my fire creativity career. Um, mystery ranch for supporting the podcast and literally just like being so supportive without asking any questions. It's amazing. Like, yeah. Um, have you met Dana yet? No. Oh, you gotta meet Dana. Yeah, I do. You gotta go up to Bozeman. You gotta go up there yeah, and like I'm hang so out. I'm so close to Bozeman. Well, I'm not so close, but I'm like, you know, I'm like eight hours from Bozeman. I could totally meet. You gotta go to the ranch. I've got so many friends over there that I should probably go visit. Um, and then my boyfriend Addie for always providing me with breakfast and lunch when I'm in the midst of making podcasts and writing extensively, and I sometimes forget to feed myself, so he. Helps me out there and is very supportive Aww. and wonderful. Oh. <laughs> oh my God. Ew, affection what is this gross. Like, what is this like? I feel like this is like an Emmy's like acceptance speech right now. I'd like, like to think, the Academy. I'd like to thank my mother because actually, yeah. Yeah, I think my parents. I don't know why, but they have supported me. <laughs> there we go. I feel like you need to cut that out. Nope, that's staying. That is staying in the podcast. Like when I was like a weird nerdy little documentarian when I was like in third grade, they never told me to stop documenting everything like an obsessive little nerd, you know, just like taking notes about shit. And hey, like, look where I got you. And like taking photos obsessively and like, I'm like, everything has to be documented like from a very young age and they never told me not to. So I feel like that's supportive, right? And look at this, you're a freelance <laughs> journalist and podcaster. <laughs> Oh man. Your parents set you up for this. <laughs> <laughs> the Montana family, this is your fault. <laughs> you did this. <laughs> you did this to her. You did this to Amanda. <laughs> um, gosh, yeah. I uh that's what I've got for right now. Nice. Cool. Well, it's good to have you on the show again. And yeah, I am totally stoked about your podcast. And I'm super stoked that you created a podcast about what you specialize in, which is the scientific and educational component of wild and fire and much, much more. I think it's a, a needed subject. I think it's a needed topic that's out there on the digital airwaves. So thank you for what you do. Appreciate well, it. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for letting me sleep in this comfortable bed in your spare bedroom instead of in the back of my truck and or on the ground, which has been the reality the last few weeks. So I Cannot tell you how much I appreciate the hospitality. 
<laughs> and the tacos tonight were so good. Right. Um, so thank you. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Mikasa Sukasa, you're welcome anytime. All right, guys, you know the drill. Stay safe, stay savage. Peace. And boom, there we go. Ladies and gentlemen, another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast is in the books with my good friend, Amanda Montai. Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your life and the uh, evolution of the Life With Fire podcast and uh, talking about what inspired you to create this platform. I think it's uh, definitely a needed niche out there in the fire community. And I I really appreciate the fact that it's uh, geared towards the more educational and scientific kind of component. It's definitely a needed niche to be filled and I appreciate what you're doing. So if you want to go find out a little bit more about the podcast, well, just Google search that. Uh, Just look for the Life With Fire podcast or go to www.lifewithfirepodcast.com and check her out on the old socials. Yeah, she's pretty easily found and I cannot even begin to explain how critical and how crucial this educational component of wildfire and prescribed fire is. It's awesome. So go check her out. It's good. It's worth a listen. Trust me. As for the rest of you, hope everybody's gearing up for the end of the season. And uh, yeah, you know, I just want to uh, take some time to say, you know, reach out to your friends, create a, a, a group chat with your squad or your crew or whatever. Keep in touch with each other. Start pre-planning your, uh, I guess, glide path to the end of the season. I think uh, a lot of folks out there, they just kind of like cut ties and just go off and do their own things, which is fine if that's your flavor. But I'd highly recommend having a plan for the end of the season because it is fast approaching. So with that being said, hope everybody is doing well. Special shout out to our sponsors. We got Mystery Ranch, purveyors of the finest damn packs in the wildland game. Go over to www.mysteryranch.com where you can check out all of their tools of the trade to help you get your job done better and go over there and check out the Backbone series. We've got Hotshot Brewery. It's kick-ass coffee for kick-ass cause. Yeah, portion of the proceeds will always go back to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation and they got everything, all the tools of the trade to get your morning started off running, all the apparel, all that jazz. So go over to www.hotshotbrewing.com and check it out. We've got the ass movement. Serious about stewardship? Hilarious name. Go over to www.thefirewild.com and check out the ass movement and use that code anchorpointass10 at checkout to save 10% off your entire order. And last but not least, we've got the AWE, Bethany you have a kick-ass organization over there. Keep it up. Go over to www.wildfireexperience.org and check it out. And while you're at it, check out the Smoky Generation. Yeah, it's awesome. You all know the drill. Stay safe, stay savage. Peace. Peace.